Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Happy Easter. Yeah, for sure. We can certainly give them a hand. It's a pretty amazing moment in human history. Amen? Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, uh, you have to acknowledge that the resurrection of Jesus has changed the world. We define time by His life uh, before Christ and in the year of our Lord. It's changed everything. And so we gather together today to celebrate that. If you are new to our church, we're glad that you're here. We've got a first-time guest tent. Uh, We'd love you to stop by and say hello. And if you're new or whether you come every week, you know that we come together every week and we celebrate Jesus Christ because He's different. He's not just some noble man. He's the God-man. Amen? The Bible says that He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the resurrection and the life, and He is risen. Come on, y'all. You are quieter in the 8 o'clock service. Come on now. Let's try that again. He is risen. Yeah, brother. I like that. That was good. That was strong. He might come up here and help me preach that part of this thing. That's good. I like that. But uh, I want you to think with me about the resurrection of Christ. Tim Keller, a pastor, says this about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. A Yale historian, Dr. Pelican, says this, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. This is the single most significant moment in human history that we're talking about today, the resurrection of Christ. It's changed the world. The question is, has it changed your world? There are a lot of people that will gather in this church and in churches around this city and in churches around the world today that believe the facts of the resurrection of Christ. They believe the tomb was empty. They believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but it hasn't changed their world. And so I want you to think with me just for a moment to that first Easter Sunday. It's recorded in the end of every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where these women that are going to the tomb, and they're going there as part of their mourning process. And remember, they're focused on a problem. And that's oftentimes how we operate as humans, right? Like we think about the problem. And what's going to about to happen is that God's going to point them to a promise. He promised that he wouldn't be there after three days. He's not there. But they're focused on a problem. The problem was, who will roll away the stone? They get there, the stone's not there. Then they think they have another problem. The body's not there. But then the angel says to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Amen. That's right. And anticipation to clap. I like that. Now, I believe that's true with all of my heart. I don't know if you do or not, but if, if it's true, if that is true, that Jesus did that when he left heaven and came to earth, he didn't come here going, oh, let's just see how it goes. Maybe some people will follow me. Maybe I'll die. I don't know. Like when he came, he was going all in. The question I want to ask you today is, have you ever gone all in for Jesus? Because he says this in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, he said to all, these are all the people that were gathered there, but he says, if anyone, and that anyone means anyone throughout all of time, anyone in any country, anyone of any race, anyone of any gender, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And here's why, for whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Have you ever gone all in for God? I'm not asking if you believe facts. I'm not asking if you occasionally attend church. I'm not asking how moral you are, how religious you are, but have you gone all in with Jesus? The passage of Scripture we're going to look at today talks about how to do that. 
It's in Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews is towards the back of the New Testament. We've been studying together as a church. We'll be in Hebrews again next week if you want to join us, those of you who are new today, um, and continue to study with us. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. Jesus is greater, is the summary of the whole book. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than glory. He's greater than power. He's greater than all of creation. Jesus is greater. Amen? Amen? But the book is being written to some people that are wavering in their commitment to Him. Uh, in chapter 2, it says that they've drifted. Uh, here's what's happened historically. Uh, they started watching church online and then they got bored. No, just kidding. <laughs> what happened was uh, the kids started yelling, the eggs weren't done. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, we've done it. And so... <laughs> Um, what happened was at one time they committed their lives to Jesus and they thought they were all in, but then the cost started to increase. Persecution came and life happened. And some people got busy and some people just denied Jesus and some people thought it's more than they had bargained for. And so some of them were tempted to go back to religion. Religion's a whole lot easier than actually following Christ. Because in religion, it's manageable. There's formulas. You go through the motions, you do the things, and you appease in your mind that you and God are good. But you've got to ask yourself the question, is that what the Bible actually says? And what's happening in the book of Hebrews is the book of Hebrews is saying, no, that's not true. But come back. Come into relationship with Him. You're wavering? Come back. You're drifting? Come back. You're never really in? Come back. And so what happens in Hebrews chapter 10, the first part we looked at last week on Palm Sunday, and it's talking about how there's a once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus. Amen, there's a sacrifice, huh? And what happens for many people is that they think because of the American version of Christianity and different things that happen, that Jesus is kind of like a, a clearance rack Jesus or like a buffet Jesus where you take what you like and leave what you don't. Uh, but what, what you end up finding out when you actually read the Bible is that salvation is free, but it's going to cost you your life. And so the author of this book is saying that to them, and he's saying, but, but if you're going to turn away from Jesus, there's a warning. And the first part of our passage today is a warning. The second part is a promise. It's just two points. Today's message is simple, a warning and a promise. The first part is the warning for those that were wavering. He says this, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, he says there's one sacrifice. No one's ever been saved by the blood of bulls or goats. No matter what you thought about when you read these sacrifices in the Old Testament, there's only one sacrifice for sins is Jesus. Amen? That's why when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying there's only one sacrifice that saves you from the wrath of God, which is what we're about to talk about. And he says, but if you deliberately turn from that sacrifice, there remains no sacrifice. But verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, so he's giving them something they know to be true from their own experience. Anyone who's broken the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him, and he's talking about God here, this might be a different God than many of us say that we worship or that we've ever heard of, <clears throat> but this is the God of the Bible. And he's saying, you know, you know who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What becomes really clear from this warning is that God's not interested in a half-hearted commitment to Him. Uh, not concerned about whether you prayed a prayer at the end of some service, whether you've done some religious ceremony, do you have a certificate somewhere that says you completed some classes? Not interested in that. He wants your heart, and He wants all of your heart. And so I just ask you this today. Have you ever gone all in on anything in life? Whether it's a relationship, maybe when you propose, your marriage, or is it financial, some business deal, 
Have you ever gone all in? I remember one time when I was in college, which by the way, uh, whenever I start a story with that, it usually is followed by a dumb decision. And so, I remember one time when I was in college, a buddy and I decided that we were going to go skydiving. <laughs> and so we looked up, where's the cheapest place to go skydiving? That's not what I recommend, by the way. It's not, your priority in skydiving should not be the cost. But we found this place, it was in the farm fields of Ohio. We were going to college in Ohio, and we drove up to this place. And if whatever you're picturing in your mind that might look like semi like a business, that's not it. And so this is a barn in the middle of Ohio. I'm pretty sure that morning they were using that same airplane to drop fertilizer on the crops at this place. And then now at like noon, they open it up like, dumb college kids, come give us your money and we'll let you jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And so we go there and we come in and we're like, hey, we want to jump out of this plane. We'll pay you. And they have us sit down and watch a video. The video is about 30 minutes long. Tell us a bunch of ways that we could die in this process. And then they have us sign some documents that say, if any of these things happen, it's not their fault. They warned us. So they gave the warning. And then we sign up and we're like, all right, we're ready to go. Now, here's what happens. The first time you go skydiving, they only take you up about 10,000 feet, which is high, 10,000 feet, but uh, you can't go by yourself. You gotta go tandem, which means there's a guy strapped to your back. And so if it's not weird enough to jump out of an airplane that works, you're gonna strap another human being to your back. You never met this guy before. I've never met this guy. Now I was, you know, like 20 years old at this point. Jeff, the instructor, comes walking up. I know that the Bible says that God looks at the heart and man looks at outward appearance, but I was looking at outward appearance. Uh, my outward appearance assessment was Jeff was not a road Scholar. <laughs> I think he could probably crush some cans on his head, but that's probably what I, but I didn't ask at that point. See, at this point in my life, I'd have probably asked, hey, Jeff, how long have you worked here? Have you ever done this before? How does one get qualified for such a gig? Like, but I was just like, strap him to my back, let's go, like at that point. And so, spoiler alert, it worked out. <laughs> I made it. Uh, Jeff must have slept at a Holiday Inn Express. I don't know. But we, we got here. And I thought that was pretty awesome until I heard of a guy named Felix Baumgartner. When I heard of Felix Baumgartner, I realized that any skydiving I have ever done is JV skydiving. That's like baby skydiving because Felix Baumgartner holds the world record. He's the first skydiver to ever break the sound barrier. So when I jumped out of a plane, it was 10,000 feet. When he jumped out of a plane, it was 128,000 feet. We've got a video of that jump that we'll actually play for you. Uh, here today. 128,000 feet above the ground, Felix Baumgartner stood at the edge of space, preparing to do what none had done before. And then, when the moment was right, he took a step, leaving the capsule behind and beginning his 24-mile fall to Earth. Along the way, Baumgartner reached a speed of 833 miles per hour, becoming the first skydiver to break the sound barrier. After falling four and a half minutes, Baumgartner deployed his chute and floated to the earth in the desert of New Mexico. It's over! <laughs> Did anybody else's stomach when you saw him go off like, whoa, like the room wasn't moving, I promise. See, now you know why I feel like my skydiving was baby skydiving. 10,000 feet with a guy on your back, are you kidding me? Oh, supervised, you're babysat. Anyway, I don't know if you've ever jumped out of a plane or not, but I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter if it's 10,000 feet or 128,000 feet. Once you take that step over the edge, you're all in. There are people in this room that are all at different stages of life. I can tell some of you are kids. Some of you, we'll just say you're not kids. <laughs> There's different stages of life here and different people at different spots with Jesus. And so it'll mean a different thing to you to ask you about going all in, but it's all in for you. Have you ever gone all in? What's being said here in this passage is if, if you're not willing to commit like that, if you're not willing to go, then 
you have no sacrifice for sin, you're not following Jesus. There's a warning here in this passage. And, and the warning is this, that we must realize the risk of rejecting Jesus. We must realize the risk of rejecting Jesus. It says it in this passage in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so then we're going to miss out on that sacrifice for sins, which provides for us forgiveness, peace, abundant life, right relationship with God, reconciliation to Him. So I, I was doing some research on Felix Baumgartner this week and his jump, and they almost scrapped the whole project. Because you think about what could happen there. Like, I thought to myself, did they ever evaluate whether or not, what if he passes out? He just forgets to pull the chute. Like, does somebody have a button? They could just push on this. They said the smartest minds in the world were not sure if whether even this was successful, if he would keep his limbs. <laughs> what else can I do with my life? Might be a question I'd ask if I were Felix. But that wasn't why Felix almost didn't jump. It wasn't because of being at the edge of the atmosphere. It wasn't scared of heights. It was that he became claustrophobic. And he had to wear that spacesuit. And he couldn't keep the spacesuit on for more than 30 minutes. It took five to six hours for him to get up there and then to deal with the pressure, pressurization of where he was at, the atmosphere. And he couldn't even do 30 minutes. And so I listened to an interview of a performance psychologist that worked with him through this whole process. His name is Michael Gervais, if you want to look it up. And Michael said the turning point for him was that he decided he would rather attempt this jump and die than not attempt to jump, live, but never know what it was like to experience it. He didn't want to just play it safe. What happens for a lot of churchgoers is they want the benefits of Christianity, but they want to play it safe. And I think that playing it safe is dealing more with religion than an actual relationship, a dynamic relationship with Jesus where he calls you to go all in. And, and so what we end up doing is we reject the truth, which is the very thing this passage is saying here. Most of us, when we think of rejecting the truth, we think it's just somebody who's like, oh, I don't believe in that. The resurrection is not true. Here's how I can disprove the Bible. And those people exist. In fact, some of them attend our church. I've had breakfast with some folks in our church that are like, I don't believe in any of the stuff that you're talking about, but my wife does or my husband does and or, you know, my being a good parent. There's people that have a handful of them that just outright reject Christianity. That's true. But that's not all that's being talked about here. Because if you look at in this book of Hebrews, these are people at one time that made a confession of faith. Now many of them are not even attending church. They're afraid of persecution. The people that are rejecting Christ here, that are deliberately going on sinning, is what's being talked about here, because let's be candid, we all sin, whether you're a follower of Christ or not a follower of Christ, I sin. Look, I'm a professional Christian, and I sin. And so we all, we all sin. The deliberate rejection of Christ is to reject the gospel. The way they were doing that was turning back to Judaism, choosing religion over the relationship with Christ. Some of them were deliberately saying, I don't believe that stuff's true. At one time I thought it was true, it's not true, I'm done, I'm out. Some of them have just started to chapter two drift from Jesus. At one time they were committed, now it's faded. How do we, what do we do with this? And I think there's at least three categories of the ways that we do this in this time period. One is just outright rejection. I told you those people are here. And there are a lot of people that will say some bold things about how they don't believe in God or how it's all fake and all those things when they're really healthy and they feel invincible and strong in life. But most of those people at the end of their life realize they're stepping into eternity. And they'll say things like Thomas Paine, this one American author who was an opponent of Christianity. Here's some of his last words. He said, I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason, that's his book, had not been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. It's, he's wavering even in these last moments. But if there is, if there should be, what will become of me after death? 
Stay with me, for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me, for it's hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I've been that one. That's some people. Other people are going to be incredibly shocked when they stand before God on Judgment Day. Those people in the American church have rejected the gospel, I think, one of two ways mainly. One, through their morality. A lot of that is the generation right before our generation where church attendance and, and a certain way of living was that what good people did. And they might say that they believe in Jesus. They might say that they believe in the, the cross and what happened at the cross, but really they're trusting in their morality. They're trusting in their religion. And so they've rejected the gospel because the gospel is by grace through faith, not your morality. What I think is more popular today in this generation is there are a lot of people that use the name of Jesus and they believe certain things about Jesus that they get from the Bible, but not the Jesus of the Bible. And so they've refashioned Jesus into one that they can follow, one that they can worship. It's not the Jesus of the Bible, it's a Jesus they've made in their own image. The Bible tells us what's going to happen to those people. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' own words, He says, one day they're going to stand before me and I'm going to say, depart from you, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they used the name Jesus, but they weren't talking about this Jesus, and He's the only Jesus that's the one sacrifice for your sins. And what it says in this passage in verse 26 is, if we go on rejecting the gospel like that, if we go on deliberately sitting after receiving the gospel, the truth, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so what comes in the rest of this section of Scripture is God's wrath which most of us don't want to talk about, right? That's a scary thing. Why are you talking about that on Easter Sunday? Just cheer everybody up and try and get them to come back. Like, all right, I love you. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not some hellfire brimstone scare you to get you into Christianity or to come to church like two weeks instead of one. Like, that's not the goal. But think about it like this. I have a daughter who's 16, and before long, she'll be able to drive on her own. And imagine that one of you gives her a car. That'd be great, by the way. Um, <clears throat> just imagine this. Maybe not after I finish the analogy, but... And it's a better car than I have. Like it's some red sports car, awesome, she's pumped. She just can't wait to drive it. And you walk up and you hand me the keys, but you lean in, you kind of give one of those church hugs. You know the church hug, where it's like you don't touch each other. It's kind of, kind of a side hug, kind of like should do something, but it's, we're told in the Bible to greet one another with a holy kiss. Where do we come up with this? But anyway, what if we were the church that like really hugged each other? Anyway, <clears throat> side note, back to the analogy. Here we go. You hand me these keys, you give me the side hug, and you whisper, it doesn't have any brakes. Okay, now what do I do? As the, I got the keys. She's ready to drive the car. She's excited. I don't want to ruin the moment. No, you know I have to tell her. If I care about her at all, I have to say, you can't get in that car the way that it is. Let's say you can never get in the car. You can't get in that car right now with no brakes. You'll die. The author of Hebrews loves these people, these Hebrew Christians. Saying, but that's why I have to give you this warning, and it's a warning of wrath. And a lot of people are like, well, I can't worship a God of wrath. That, that might be your problem. You've remade him into your image. Do you know what the Bible says about Jesus in the last days? Listen to this. There's going to be people that are pretty terrified of Jesus in the last days. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 says this. Then the kings, we've seen them on TV recently, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, we've heard about their military thoughts on what's happening in the Ukraine, and the rich, the people trying to buy Twitter, and the powerful, and everyone, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, they're actually speaking to creation, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the… If you're going to use an animal to describe wrath, why didn't you say lion? Lamb, that's Jesus. Hide us from Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I can never worship a Jesus who, that might be your problem. Listen to what Jesus Himself says about wrath in the Bible. I'm just going to read you a few verses. Some of your Bibles might have these in red letters. That means that Jesus is speaking them. Matthew chapter 13, verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. This is Jesus speaking. But I just worship a Jesus of love. Yeah, He loves you enough to warn you of what's coming. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I just want a Jesus who loves kids and who's meek and mild. Okay, here's a verse about Jesus and kids. Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A little bit later in that same chapter, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. You do whatever you have to do to come follow me. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So hell is real and real people go there. And because Jesus is love, he tells them about that. And most people are going there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's the majority. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 8 right after this where there are some demons that Jesus comes into contact with. If you read the New Testament, demons have the best theology in all the Gospels. Listen to what they say. Behold, they, demons, cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know who Jesus is. There's not the confusion. He's a great teacher. He's the Elijah. No, there's not that. They know who He is. You're the Son of God. But then they, they know what's coming. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know the majority of people are going to torment, for eternal torment. They know they are going to be there, but they're just going, Jesus, you're early. And so this passage in Hebrews says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So if there's no longer a sacrifice for sin, if God is just, there's only one thing that remains, judgment. That's what verse 27 says, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and get this, and a fury of fire fury of fire. Interesting words. God's not just a little bit angry with our sin. He's furious with our sin. And you think about who that is. Have you ever had somebody that you were afraid of their wrath coming after you? I remember one time when I was in high school, I had a friend who did some stupid stuff to the wrong person. And then word got out that they got some people to come looking for him and his friends. I was his friend. Bad, bad association. Bad association. Don't do that. The group was called the Hell's Angels. Have you heard of them? Yeah. We were just high school kids. Not a good matchup. I remember one time he, we played football together. We were on a bus on our way to a football game, and these motorcycles came driving up to the bus, and we ducked. We didn't want to find us. We didn't know if that was the Hell's Angels, but they were on motorcycles. Uh, God's stronger than the Hell's Angels. We're called in the next part of this verse his adversaries. He's all powerful, omnipotent all-knowing. There's no hiding from Him. And here's the worst part if you're His adversary, eternal. The wrath is eternal. Look at what it says, the fury of fire, verse 27, 
that will consume the adversaries, that's everyone who is rejecting the gospel, whether that's by making up your own version of Jesus, whether that's trusting your morality, or just outright rejecting Him. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. They've just seen justice in the world. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant which He has sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The most famous sermon that's ever been preached wasn't by Billy Graham. It's by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Some even secular schools that have nothing to do with Jesus will study it as great literature because of the word pictures that are in it. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It wasn't from this passage, although the title came from verse 31 that I just read to you. It was from the book of Deuteronomy. In it, he describes God's wrath. I want to read you a little section of his description. He says, the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course once it's let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. God's not willing that any would perish. They're unwilling to be stopped, the waters, and they press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, or 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. That's God's wrath. He gives a picture in our passage in Hebrews where he talks about you've seen justice executed by the courts, the, someone's violated the law of Moses by two or three witnesses. When we know that that's true, you've seen justice executed and people lose their lives. And so I think, what about for us? We don't oftentimes get associated with the court or see uh, execution and the death penalty today. And so what should you picture in your mind today? Maybe the war crimes of Putin, that wouldn't be enough. Or maybe uh, what's happened in the subway in New York, but that wouldn't be enough. Or maybe 9-11, for those of you who saw people jumping from a burning building because what was inside was so bad, people would jump to their… But that's not enough because none of that's eternal. So if you want to picture the wrath of God, it's the cross. You think about what we talked about, those of you who came to the Good Friday service or reflected on Good Friday about the death of Jesus. And yes, he experienced wrath. The beating, the, but the prophet Isaiah said that he would be beaten beyond the recognition of a man. And then we read in Luke, they played a game with him called Blind Man's Bluff, and they would punch him in the face and say, tell us who hit you. And they beat him so his face swelled so much you couldn't recognize he was human. And they scourged his back. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ with the Romans scourging, they fl flayed his back organs coming out, broken bones. It's, it's ridiculous. That's not the wrath of God. That's the wrath of man. The Persians invented the cross. The Romans perfected it. They brought him to the place of the cross, Golgotha, the skull. They put him over this hole and they dropped the cross in. Tertullian, the historian, says that many people went insane because the pain was so bad at that moment. Not the wrath of God. That's the wrath of man. 
The wrath of God was not when he cried out that he was thirsty. It was not when, when people were bidding over his clothes and he said, Father, forgive them. The wrath of God was when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, Jesus Christ was absorbing the punishment for your sin and my sin. That's the once for all sacrifice. That's what happened at the cross. That's what's coming for you if you don't have a substitute. But there's another verse in the Bible. It's said in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that we're his adversaries, but in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says that while we were yet his adversaries, sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. Amen? The godly for the ungodly. But in order to receive that, you've got to place your trust in Christ. But it costs you everything. It's free gift, but it'll cost you your life. Are you willing to go all in? Before you answer that, you've got to ask, second point, the great part about this passage that I just read to you, it's a horrible passage, until you get to verse 32, and there's a but. Contrast. The wrath of God, fiery fury coming after you, consuming his adversaries. There's no sacrifice for sins, but, look at verse 32, you've got to count the cost of following Jesus. You must count the cost of following Jesus. But, he says, verse 32, recall, remember, think back to a past time. He's talking to people that are wavering in their faith. There was a time they were committed to Jesus. Now is not that time. Now they're not even going to church. But at one time they were willing to die. Look what it says. Recall, but remember, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you had received the truth, that's the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. They suffered for Christ. Verse 33 gives an example of it. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, then he gives another example. And sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and don't miss this word, and you joyfully, joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. <laughs> and so he reminds them, remember, you have counted the cost. People are wondering, where are these people going? They're going to be baptized. <laughs> They want you to know they're going all in. They're not leaving. They're not offended at this point. You're going to be offended. It was on the first point. Now, this is the good news, by the way. So they've counted the cost. See, our problem in America is we want to clearance rack Jesus. There's some discount on this deal. I'm going to take the stuff I like. I want the forgiveness. I want the peace. I want the abundant life. I don't want it to cost me anything. Jesus doesn't offer that option, by the way. So if that's your plan, you have a Jesus. It's not the Jesus that's a sacrifice for sins. Jesus tells us before we can follow him to count the cost. He gives multiple analogies in the Gospels. Here's a couple. Luke chapter 14. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? So some of you, maybe that would be a house. Maybe some of you commercial developers in North Hills. You know, build a tower, count the cost. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will come by and mock him, saying, this man began to build, wasn't able to finish. You'd be a fool not to count the cost. Or, here's a Vladimir Putin illustration, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to win? Oops. With 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet great way off, will he not send and ask for terms of peace? If you know you can't win, don't go to fight. Count the cost. If you know you can't afford it, don't buy it. This is before credit cards uh, right here. And so that's what... That's what we want. We want a zero down, no cost Jesus. And he has a no haggle price. It's everything. It says this right before that passage, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
right after that passage, it says, so therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So I'd ask you, have you ever considered the cost of following Christ? He's telling these people, you have at one time. He says, you were willing to endure suffering. They suffered for Christ, verse 32. Public exposure, verse 32. Some people think that public exposure was that some of them were in the gladiator games. You remember that? That was made popular by that Russell Crowe movie in the early 2000s, the gladiator games, where he fights, he's Maximus, whatever titles he is, us, us, us names. But he's like awesome at fighting. And so he comes out, he kills like six or seven guys in one scene. All the other gladiators stay in the cage. I don't know why, but he comes out and he kills like six or seven. Then he throws a sword at the booth. And remember what he says? It's a famous line from the movie. Are you not entertained? Do you know why? Because historians know. So what happened in the gladiator games is people that were enslaved and people that were being persecuted would be put out there to fight against each other, rarely against animals, but sometimes against animals, usually against each other, and oftentimes fight to the death. But the masses would come to be entertained by this. And what's maybe being said here in this passage, we don't know for sure, is that some of the Christians had done that, but now are turning their back on Jesus. You were willing to die for Jesus. All you had to do was renounce your faith, and you didn't have to go to the Colosseum, but you went to the Colosseum, and now you're not following him? He's reminding them, remember, you once were committed. And, and some of you, it wasn't that you went to the Colosseum. He gives another example. He says, some of you lost possessions because you went to visit people in prison. It was the only way that people were uh, sustained when they were in prison. They didn't have a state system that fed them. And it all the so your friends had to come. But if you came, you identified with those people. They were in prison because of their faith. He's saying, you lost all your stuff, but here's the crazy word, joyfully. You joyfully lost all your stuff. Why? What well, it says here, that you knew yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. And Jesus teaches this truth when he's teaching on earth with a one-verse parable. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Why? Because all that he has isn't worth as much as the treasure. He feels like he's getting over in this deal. I was, I was reading, it's kind of scary how social media knows everything about us. Uh, I was already done. I had written the message, so I typed it on my computer about treasure, put this verse in here, ready to go, and then I get this article, treasure hunters. Like, well, I'm interested, so I click on it. And it's got all these great treasure hunters, some deep sea divers. There was one guy that I had never heard of before that was an FBI agent who actually works for our federal government to recover art that's being sold on the black market. And it told a story of one time that he busted an entire New York museum, $100, $100 million, I mean, it was like $200 million worth of art that was there. Currently, he's working on recovering the art. That, remember a few years back when Al-Qaeda was knocking over museums and stealing statues and all that kind of stuff? Uh, he's trying to recover all of that, hundreds of millions of dollars of art. He's risking his life. I thought with the Raleigh house market and how crazy it is right now, like you have an open house and 100 people show up. Can you imagine if you were trying to buy a house and you knew art like that? And you saw on the wall there was a hundred million dollar painting. And all you had to do was buy this house. But people are bidding above the price, and maybe the price is $500,000. And you don't have that much, but you're going to go figure it out. You can sell your house. You can sell your stuff. You're going to sell family pictures. You don't care. You can sell everything you got. You come into a closing with a loincloth. You don't, hey, I follow Jesus, Adam and Eve. Here I am. Because the paintings, if you buy the house, you get the painting. The paintings worth $100 million. Who cares if you've got to come up with a million dollars? Figure it out. With joy. And saying the people that have counted the cost of following Christ realize it's going to cost you everything. It'll cost you your idols. It might cost you your money. You're going to love Jesus more than you love your family. It'll cost everything. You, you want people to all, your biggest deal is that everybody approves of you. That's not going to happen if you follow Jesus. 
You want power? No, you're surrendering power. Lord means he's in charge. You want all, all of the things here on earth, you're going to grab all these things? No, the moth and rust destroy. You've got to realize you're storing up a better place, a better possession. It's in heaven. Come follow. Do you realize he's greater? That's the only way you'd ever pay this cost. And that's what he says. He says there, they did it joyfully. And look at the last part of the passage. Therefore, do not throw away your great confidence, which has a great reward. Some people I've met, even in our own church, are like, well, I don't want to follow Jesus because of the reward. Next week, we're going to be Hebrews chapter 11. It says in verse 6, God rewards those who eagerly seek him. It's defining faith. God knows how we work. He's going to give us something better than this. That's why Paul says in Philippians, I count everything a loss and surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's a better reward. So I give up everything here for that reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's the reward. It's eternal life. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, that's Jesus, and will not delay. But my righteous one, there's a quote from the Old Testament, live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then, remember he started with a warning, but he ends with encouragement. But we are not of those who shrink back. Amen? Oh, and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and persevere, their souls. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're all children of wrath. But God is rich in mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve wrath. But we're saved by grace. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. We're given the gift of eternal life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says it like this, for the wages of sin, what you earned because of the life that you've lived, you've rejected the gospel. All of us do. By nature, we're children of wrath. What you've earned is, it calls it here, death, separation from God. But, but's a great word. But is a great word in the Bible. Contrast, there's a gift. The gift is eternal life. How do you receive the gift? It's free. Jesus already paid for it at the cross. He's the once for all sacrifice, but you have to receive it. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tell us. Really clear Easter passage. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is worthy of everything, He's Lord, He's Master, He's Boss, He calls the shots, you will be rescued saved from God's wrath. I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if, if at some point in this sermon you've realized that you are a child of wrath, that God's wrath is coming for you, maybe because you've made up the Jesus that you follow, or maybe because you've been trusting in your own religion or your own morality, or maybe because, because you've rejected God and you know it. But today you want to go all in with Him? I want to lead you in praying a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. But what God's doing in your heart can. If you're willing to lay your life out before Him and say, here's my life, you're Lord, I surrender my life to you, and I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead, the Bible promises that you'll be saved. Receive that promise by receiving Jesus to be your Savior right now. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If you're watching online, I would ask you to even stop what you're doing and pray. If you would, if you're watching online, if you just put in the comments the word Jesus, if you're about to pray this prayer, and we've got somebody that's going to give you some information. If you're about to pray this prayer with me right now to ask Jesus to be your Savior, would you pop your hand up if you're in this room? Everybody else have your heads bowed and your eyes closed up for myself, other pastors here. So somebody raising their hand on the back on the left. Anybody else want to pray this prayer with me? We've had people in every service trust Christ. If you want to trust Christ, will you pray this with me? Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I confess my sin to you. And like I said, it's not praying the words that I'm praying. It's just you talk to God in your own heart. And maybe you need to confess specific sin to Him right now. Even right, You know that's what's hindering you from trusting Him. And so hand that over to Him. It's only, only God can come in 
not your religion, not your morality, only God through Jesus Christ can come into the impossible situation of your shame and your guilt and wash that away as far as the east is from the west. So you confess that to him. You don't have to say it out loud. Just say it to him. I confess my sin to you, and I know my sin separates me from you, and I know it deserves wrath. But I believe that your son Jesus came and died. And he didn't stay dead. He rose. And because of that, I want to ask him to be my Savior. And I surrender my life to him as Lord. And you can say it in your own words. You can say the exact words that I just said. But if you just said that, the Bible says that all of heaven's rejoicing over one person that turns to him, that turns your life over to him, it'll change the most important moment in your life right now. So don't rush through it. For the rest of us, all God's people said,